Bibles, if you would, Revelation chapter 17. Tonight we're going to bring to a close this little series of messages that I've been bringing on the apostate religious system, the rise of the apostate religious system that will help the Antichrist rise to power. And I don't know how long it's going to be before the Antichrist comes. It could be a thousand years from now. Uh, I don't know. He could be living among us right now. But I do know this, a very important factor for us to consider is that the New Testament tells us to looking to look for the coming of the Christ and not for the coming of the Antichrist. And I know it's not hard for us to wonder about things when we see things that are going on around us and we may think, well, the coming of Christ surely must be near. The Antichrist, uh, uh, the Antichrist is about to appear. There are so many bad things happening in the world. And I think we have to be careful as Christians to do what Brother Dalton was just singing about, and that is to be glad. Because we spend our time a lot as Christians complaining about things, complaining about the government, about policies we don't like, and all different sorts of things. And it turns out many times that we can become very, very sour Christians. I mean, our reaction to all these things that are going on around us and things that we don't like can cause us to have a real bad attitude about things. And I think that we really ought to uh, brighten up a little bit, cheer up a little bit, and think positively about the coming of Christ's kingdom. I think that's where the Lord would have us spend our time. And I don't mean that we ought to uh, skip through the world with a Pollyanna attitude and innocence like that. But I also don't think that the focus of our church ought to be on trying to change things through legislation and joining up with churches that always got a cause or a program that's going on other than the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and things that we should learn about Scripture. I also do believe that Christians ought to perform their civic duties. I think that you ought to vote and things like that. But I think that sometimes what can happen to us is we find ourselves aligned sometimes with questionable Christians and apostate churches that have a common political goal. And that's going to be one of the tactics of the Antichrist. I mean, the things that we may stand against that sometimes may seem innocent enough, and we may join in or think we we can join in things like uh, pro-life rallies or uh, join up with charismatic churches and opposing casinos and certain political candidates and even some humanitarian efforts that go on. When they're done by a conglomeration of churches of different faiths, those seemingly innocent endeavors that are not wrong in themselves are actually the very kinds of things or or the noxious means of bringing in the Antichrist into power with a bloodless coup. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in this sermon, towards the end of the sermon, just a little bit about interfaith movements and how that Roman Catholicism uses those for their purposes, for their own ulterior motives. Now, our text this evening is Revelation 17, 1 through 6. Let me just read this to you one more time uh, tonight before we move on next week to something new. But verse number 1, And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast 
full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stone and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now, let me set the stage for you tonight. Um, Let me just give you the players that we have in these six verses. Uh, Someone a few weeks ago told me that they were having difficulty sorting all of this out and understanding the symbolism that's here. So let me just break it down for you a little bit before we begin this last part. Verse number one speaks about seven angels, and these seven angels have seven vials. And those vials represent the very last judgments that are going to be poured out upon the earth uh, in the tribulation time, at the close of the tribulation time. And those last seven vials poured out in rapid succession will bring, uh, will culminate rather in the battle of Armageddon just before Jesus comes to reign upon the earth. The woman that we see in the passage is not a real woman. This is a symbolic woman, and she represents the old religion of Babylon, uh, the religion that began with Nimrod right after the flood. And she also represents this apostate ecclesiastical power that rules with the Antichrist. And also in verse number 1, we see there where it, it says she sits on many waters. And that's explained all the way over in verse number 15. Uh, The waters are peoples and multitudes, nations and tongues. And so that means the whole world in its entirety. All of the world will be gathered together from every part of the world into this uh, one super religion. All joined together in one big religion. Verse number 2 shows us that the government joins with this apostate conglomerate. So kings from all over the earth of different nations will throw in with this religion, and her religion becomes their religion, and so it becomes a state church. Then verse number 3 says that the woman sits on a scarlet-colored beast, and the beast is emblematic of the political empire of the Antichrist. The apostate church rides on top of this political power, and in turn, that political power, helping one another in this relationship, also gives power to this ecclesiastical church. The seven heads and the ten horns we're going to discuss a little bit later when we talk about the fall of ecclesiastical Babylon. But just briefly, the seven heads represent seven former and future kingdoms that will come into power, uh, former kingdoms in the past and future powers that will, kingdoms that will come into power during the tribulation time. And then the ten horns are symbols of power. And these are ten kings that will join in some future kings. We don't know who they are. Uh, They haven't been revealed to us. But in the tribulation, ten kings will arise and they will also throw in with the Antichrist. Then verse verse number four speaks of her clothing. And that's emblematic of the massive amounts of wealth that are controlled by this state church. Verse number five ties the great world religion back to the ancient city of Babylon where all apostate religions got their start. You see, this is the mother of all those apostate religions. All of them got their start way back there with, uh, with Babylon. And apostate religion is always referred to in the Scripture, at least uh, idolatry is referred to in Scripture as adultery and as fornication. And that's why this woman is referred to as the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. 
Well, the new state church that comes into power during the tribulation is not a church with an unknown faith. I mean, it's nothing more, really, or nothing less as well than the old apostate religion of Babylon. It's been with us throughout history. It just changed in form just a little bit. And it's, it's going to be the same religion when we get to the time of the Antichrist. We've had it for 4,500 years and it's not going to go away until Jesus ends it. And then verse number 6 speaks about the cruel character of this church. It's covered in the blood of the martyrs. It's slaughtered millions of people down through its history. And it will continue to do so in massive amounts during the time of tribulation. And so the purpose of Mystery Babylon is to unite a politically divided world by the one thing that will unite divisive people, and that's religion. That's what's intended to do. Only religion has the power to actually uh, bring people together in this way. And so the apostate church is used by the Antichrist to help him gain his control of political governments. So then, as I mentioned a moment ago, he's able to come to power there uh, with a, in a bloodless coup. There is no war. He comes to power without firing a shot. He actually comes into power by the unanimous, unanimous consent of all of these nations that are now divided by this, or excuse me, united by this uh, religious system. So that brings us up to speed except for one part of this, and that is... We've been studying this schismatic church that heads up this religious system. Now, although the religious conglomerate is built of many different religions, such as Buddhism and and Hinduism, Taoism, Confucianism, uh, did I mention Islam? That's in there as well. And all the other isms that you want to add in there with it. Uh, Yet all of that is headed up by apostate Christianity. And that's because Satan has always loved to mimic Christianity. And so that it's this apostate church that, that really brings all of that together and is the head of it. So we ask the question as we go through this, what church is in existence that has always had an association with political governments? And what church began with compromise by combining pagan practices with Christian practices... And what church has persecuted many, many people throughout its history? What church has pagan idolatry at its core? And the answer to the question is Roman Catholicism. And Catholicism is really nothing more, nothing less than repackaged Babylon. So the high priestess was changed to Mary, uh, given the name of Mary. The false savior becomes Jesus. The many idols of the mythological gods became Christian saints. The pagan temples became Christian churches. The pagan festivals became Christian celebrations. And on and on it goes. And Catholicism stands as a perfect fit to what we're speaking of here concerning the religion of the Antichrist. So what I've been doing in these previous five messages is giving you history of Roman Catholicism and showing you how it does fit in the opening verses of chapter 17. So that summary that I've just given you answers to the first five parts of this message. So let me, just, let me just give those to you very briefly again, just so you can write them down, because they're all on the listening sheet once more. First of all was the preparation of the Roman church. 
And that's the history of how ancient Babylon with its gods and goddesses were incorporated into Roman Catholicism. Secondly, we talked about the power of the Roman church. And in that part of the message, we discussed the alliance of apostate churches with Constantine in the 4th century, which actually formed the Roman Catholic Church and how that Rome has always used political power for nearly all of its existence. And then thirdly, we spoke of the prosperity of the Roman Church. That's the wealth of Roman Catholicism as it corresponds to verse number four. And number four is the perversions of the Roman Church. These are perversions of Bible doctrines, the invention of new doctrines that have been incorporated into their system, and it is a scheme that enslaves people. It's a money-making scheme. It enriches the apostate church. Rome has used these perverse doctrines for centuries to put people in fear of their souls, the fear for the souls of loved ones, and they actually make people think that they have control of life and death. Number five is the persecutions of the Roman church. And that's what we discussed last week. Uh, For centuries, Rome has brutalized anybody who disagreed with them. And verse number 6 says that the apostate church is drunk with the blood of martyrs. And there is no religion in the world that has so vigorously persecuted the people of God like Catholicism. And as we learned last week, still today, there's this mechanism that's in place... The Inquisition is still in place, and all of it's waiting for is a return to political power. And when the Roman Catholic Church has that political power behind it once more, it won't have any trouble at all recharging the machine and starting that terror, the, the brutality, the torture and killing that will finally terminate in the worship of the Antichrist as God. So now... We've caught up on the previous messages. And I had originally intended that we would stop here. Uh, We would do it in five messages, and then we'd take up uh, the next part, which is the fall of ecclesiastical Babylon. And rest assured, she will be destroyed. I mean, the people that use her so much and have benefited so much by her abilities are actually going to be the ones that destroy her. And they do so because they become sickened of her. Sickened of her power, sickened of following the Pope in his little white dress and, and following this hierarchical system that's been devised. They're sick of all of that. And so they're going to end it. But that doesn't mean that religion is done. Religion, religion is not done. The apostate church is over. Ecclesiastical Babylon has been destroyed. But all that that does is put the Antichrist right where he wants to be, where he is the god of his own empire. So I was going to stop with point number five, but I decided... We would add just one more and we would complete the history of Rome. Number six is the posterity of the Roman church. This system is called the mother of harlots. And that also fits the description of the Roman Catholic church because out of Rome there have been many daughters that have been born. Now some of them have carried on uh, many of her evil practices, some less. Uh, Some truth was recovered uh, by these of harlot daughters, but they still came out of Catholicism. And through the years, those daughters that came out of her have become weaker and weaker. Now, I think here's what we really need to understand first about all of this, especially when you're thinking about the Roman Catholic Church as the the original church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what you need to think about, and that is the true church never apostatized. The true church cannot apostatize. I mentioned this in an earlier message, but 
Many people do believe, as I just stated, that the Roman church was actually the first church and that this is the church that was begun by Christ and the apostles. Rome teaches that Peter was the first pope, that he received his authority as the pope directly from Christ. And one of the most controversial scriptures that we have in all of the Bible is the one that Rome uses to establish Peter as the pope. And that is in Matthew chapter 16. I want you to turn there. We're going to look at this scripture because it's important for us to see here that Peter was not the first pope and the true church could never have gone into total apostasy as Roman Catholicism has done. So we look at Matthew chapter 16 beginning in verse 13. Matthew 16 verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say, Thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven." And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now we don't have time really to examine this thoroughly tonight, so I'm not going to get into the many, many different variations there are of interpretation of this. But Rome uses this, and they say that Christ built his church upon Peter, and that's the appointment of the first pope. But there's something we ought to notice about this, and, and uh, that is that Peter was only a spokesman for this group. And Christ's question, but whom say ye that I am, was actually addressed to the entire group. Now, this is one of the reasons why that it's good for you to have a King James Version. I mean, here it's more clearly seen because uh, the King James Version actually helps us in our understanding. He says, whom say ye that I am? And ye is the formal, uh, uh, the plural form of you. So Jesus was actually addressing that question to the whole group. And when Peter answered the question, he was speaking for the group. And the confession of Peter was the very same confession that would have been made by every one of those disciples had they been the one that spoke up. And there's a great point of doctrine here. Uh, Peter replied, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said, Flesh and blood hath not revealed it to thee, unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And there is a statement that shows us that no man understands who Christ is unless it has been specifically revealed to them from heaven. And though we may preach indiscriminately to all people, which we should, we give the gospel to everyone, and yet... No one can believe the gospel unless God reveals Christ to them. You see, belief in Christ is not inherent in the message itself. God uses the message. But in order for a person to actually believe, God has to open the eyes of the sinner. And I think that's very plain that God does it by his own will. Because God doesn't open the eyes of all sinners. 
And I don't know how you could argue that point because uh, Paul said exactly the same thing in First First uh, Corinthians chapter two verse fourteen. He said, "But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him; neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned." So I just kind of threw that information in so that you can see that the sovereignty of God and salvation is sprinkled in scriptures all throughout the Bible. It's not isolated cases. It's all through the Bible. So Peter answered the question correctly. And then comes this troubling statement to expositors, what Jesus said. He said, And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There are four troubling parts to these statements. What does Jesus mean when he says, Upon this rock I will build my church? The second part, what does he mean by the gates of hell? Thirdly, what are the keys to the kingdom? And fourthly, what is bound on earth and in heaven, and what is loosed on earth and in heaven? Those are the four things that have to be answered about this passage. Now, I'm just going to give you the short answers to them because this message is not intended to explore the details of this passage. But let's just look at it for a minute. Number one, what is the rock that Jesus is talking about? Well, the rock that Jesus is speaking of building the church on is himself. Peter was a small rock, and that is what the name Peter means. It means a small rock. And Jesus is the massive rock. He's the cliff of rock upon which the church is built. And so this statement actually becomes a play on words where Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you are a small rock. But he says, upon this rock, meaning himself, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus is saying, you are a small rock, but I am the massive rock upon which the church is built. The second question we have is, what are the gates of hell? And some say that that means that death won't prevail against the church. Others say that hell can never mount uh, a successful offensive against the church. And I think it actually combines both of those thoughts. I think both of them are here. First, death can never overcome God's elect people. And that is promised to us in 1 Corinthians 15 when when Paul talks about the resurrection and he says, you know, where's the victory in the grave? Death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? And then it talks about the triumphant rise that we have in Christ. And that tells us that death is never going to overcome a person who's a believer in God. And then secondly, the gates of the city, a gate is a gates of hell, a, a, a gate is where judgments are made. And if you go look, if you look through the Bible, you'll find often in Scripture that the gates of the city are are, are a very specific place where the king would meet with his people for judgment. If you go to Israel and you look at the excavations of the ancient cities there, you find these large rooms that are walled off right next to the gates. And that's because people would come in there and the king would pass judgment in the gate of the city. So what this is referring to, the gates of hell, it means Satan's, uh, his, his, his plans, his schemes, everything that he tries to do, the, the followers that follow him, they're never going to be successful against God's church. Thirdly, the keys to the kingdom, what are those? Well, the keys to the kingdom are the truths that are contained in the gospel. 
The only way that you can ever get into the kingdom of God is to go through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the preaching of the gospel has been committed to the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ and to no others. God blesses the gospel through the church. And so Peter is not the only one that had the key to heaven or the keys there. You also have the keys. I mean, every one of you that's a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been given the ability by God to give people the gospel, to actually give them the key that unlocks or show them the key, help them unlock the door to heaven. Every single one of us has keys to the kingdom. Not just Peter. Every believer does. And then binding and loosing, what is that? Well, that refers to the work of the church that's built upon Christ and the apostles. Uh, The church is the pillar and ground of the truth, and the decisions that are made by the church, supported by Scripture, being led by the Holy Spirit, those decisions are authoritative. That does not mean that we can add to Scripture. It doesn't mean that we can take anything... Uh, traditions or anything like that and elevated above Scripture, it means that we look into the Word of God and as led by the Holy Spirit of God, He directs the church and the decisions that are made. And so when faithful Christians uh, listen to the direction of the Holy Spirit and listen as they're taught in their church, then they become bound to the church through those teachings. But if you have a, a person who acts like they don't want to listen to that, and they, and they have sin in their life, then unrepented believers are to be released from the church. They're loosed. And that's what Scripture is speaking about there. So there are various interpretations that are given to this, but one thing that we do know for sure, and one thing that we ought to avoid like the plague, is any teaching that Peter was a pope, and that the successors to Peter, or the popes of the Roman Catholic Church, avoid that in every way that you possibly can. So it's not the Pope, it's not the priest, it's not the Roman Catholic Church that has the keys to heaven. There's no such thing as Rome having the power to forgive sins. There is no such thing as them being able to assign penance for restitution or to give people absolution. All of that is perversion. But the main point of it, and I apologize for the time spent on getting into all the other parts of it, the main part is that the schemes of hell are not going to overcome the church. The church is never going to be so overcome by false doctrine. The church is not going to be knocked off stride to the place that it would apostatize and then have to have this overall big reformation of the church, such as we call the Protestant Reformation. So thus Rome is never, it was never a true church. It's always been an apostasy which means that the churches that came out of Rome are also, or they're her daughters, and they are also not true churches. Now, that's the second point I want to make, and that is the ascent of Protestantism. And I've remarked before that we do need to be thankful for the Protestant Reformation. There were many great truths that came out of it. The gospel was opened up to many Roman Catholics, You had Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and many others, and they began to teach justification by faith alone. And they taught that man is depraved, that there are no good works that a man can do. There's nothing he can help himself in order to get to heaven. And the Reformers preached a gospel that did give God the glory in God alone. So sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christo, sola Deo gloria, Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. 
Those five solas of the Reformation are nothing but the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're thankful for that. But the Protestants didn't recover that out of Rome. Rome never had it. It never came from the popish system. Those doctrines came from God. And they were always a part of true churches that existed for many, many centuries of Rome's persecution. And so while Rome was being ascending and while it's going on, there were always these true churches that never departed from the truth of God's word. They've always been here. They never did join with Rome. And they've always believed these doctrines of grace that we teach right here in Berean Baptist Church. If you want to read more about that, we have copies of the Trail of Blood, which is the history of true churches from the time of Christ all the way down to, well, that book actually goes through the latter part of the 19th century. So the, the point of this is that the Reformation was actually 1,500 years too late for the churches that came out of her, out of that Reformation, to be true churches. Now, there's a lot of truth that they have, but also in the process, the Protestant churches have kept some of Rome's practices. And one of the worst practices that's kept by many Protestant churches is that of infant baptism. And I've never made complete sense of the Protestant position on this. I mean, you read Luther, for instance, about it, and Luther taught justification by faith alone, and he'll say that in one part, and then you follow him a little bit further, and he talks about how that sins are washed away in baptism. So it's confusing, the, the, the stands that they take. And today, the Lutheran church believes in baptismal regeneration. Now the problem with that is that the gates of hell knocked over Lutheranism. And the reason it did was because Luther was never promised, and no church that came out of Rome was ever promised, that they would not apostatize. Now, that's not a promise given to them. That's given to the true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you look at other Protestants. You look at Presbyterianism, for instance. Now, they also practice infant baptism, not for the same purpose as the Lutherans, but they practice infant baptism. And if you look at their churches today, uh, and let me just back up a little bit, they don't believe that you're saved through, through, through baptism, but they still baptize infants. But you look at Presbyterianism today, and a huge portion of it has gone into deep apostasy, uh, ordaining homosexuals as, as uh, ministers and also women as ministers. And so they've apostatized from the true gospel of Christ that was taught by Calvin. And the same thing is true of him. Calvin was never told to start a church. What Calvin should have done was join the churches that were already in existence that were teaching the true, true, or the true doctrines of Jesus Christ. So, you have Presbyterians today. Some of them do teach the truth on many issues. And where they agree with our Baptist forefathers, we can agree with them. But where they don't, we part company. So, the true church of Christ was never Protestant. It didn't come out of Roman Catholicism, and it couldn't, because Rome was never a true church. And then you have lots of other churches that are offshoots of offshoots of Roman Catholicism. I mean... In other words, you have granddaughters and great-granddaughters of Roman Catholicism. Let me give you an example, the Methodists. The Methodists came out of the Anglicans who came out of the Roman Catholic Church. And then you look at the charismatic churches that we have today. They came out of the Wesleyan movement who came out of the Anglicans who came out of the Roman Church. So you get daughters and granddaughters and great-granddaughters. It all comes out of Romanism. And if you look at it today... 
what Wesley taught, and Wesley had some good doctrine in many points, but his doctrine of salvation by faith alone is no longer taught by those who came out of a, who have carried on uh, and came out of the Roman Catholic Church. Th- that doctrine is no longer there. None of the mainstream charismatic churches believe the same things that Wesley believed and things, and they don't believe in perseverance and preservation of the saints. There are some in the movement that do, but the statements of faith, the official statements of faith, deny that a person is eternally saved. So what we have today is a group of churches that have come out and they've mixed together and joined together in different things, and we have a lot of apostasy that's going on. And we look at our Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches and many others, and we find that in them the gospel is sinking fast. And what it's done, it's been given over to pragmatism and church growth strategies as the marketing of the gospel, and that's clearly unbiblical. Entertainment, worldly attraction, that's the marketing strategy, and all of that, folks, the gospel is lost. The gospel is lost in the process of it. So now what we have now are churches that have an unrecognizable gospel, and that makes them ripe for the plucking. You see, when the Antichrist comes into power, these are the churches that are going to be gathered up into one, all these scattered pieces of Rome that broke out and were not ever true churches. All of those scattered pieces are going to be gathered up again, and Rome's going to control them once more. Now that brings me, lastly, to the realignment with Rome. And I want to make something clear to you. In many of these churches, there are true believers. There are people that are as saved as I am, as saved as many of you sitting in the church tonight. I hope all of you are saved. But there are people in those churches that are just as saved as we are. There's no doubt about that. I don't think when Christ comes, they're going to be taken out of the world. They're going to be in heaven. They'll be raptured just as we are. But the remainder of them, the ones that never truly believed in Christ, those are going to be grouped together in this huge conglomerate that's going to march to the beat of the Pope and they'll be controlled by the Antichrist and they're the ones that are going to switch over when the ecclesiastical Babylon is destroyed. They'll be the ones that'll switch over and begin to worship the Antichrist as God. So in the meantime, while while all of that's going to take place in the future, what's happening today with this? Well, we find that Rome is making its overtures and has been for many, many years to bring these churches back together again. Try to get it all back into one movement. And so we have a couple of modern movements that I want to talk to you about tonight, just in closing here, that are are made up of apostate Christianity and it's an attempt, just exactly what we're talking about, or get churches back together. Now, the first one is the ecumenical movement. And the short definition of the ecumenical movement is this. That's the attempt to unify all churches. And they don't necessarily all have the same name, but they have this spirit of cooperation among them where doctrine really doesn't matter to them. really doesn't matter what you believe. All churches should come together because, because ostensibly we have a common cause. And there are organizations such as the National Council of Churches and the World Council of Churches and they are the ones that head up this, this whole thing of the ecumenical movement. Now, what does World Council of Churches sound like? Sounds like exactly what it is. It's an attempt to get all the churches of the world together. And here's the thing about it. The effects 
of that are seen in every single city in the United States of America. All over the world, too. Let me give you an example. When the Gurritz family left here, uh, they moved to South Carolina. And I think that if you'd talk to them, uh, you would see that they were very impressed by the numbers of Baptist churches that they saw when they got to South Carolina, North Carolina. Because in many of the southern states, Baptist churches are everywhere. In some of the states, I think it's Mississippi, uh, and, and some of them approach this. In Mississippi, there are over 80% of the people that claim to be Baptist. Can you imagine that in Sonoma County? 80% of the people Baptist? I'd fall over dead of a heart attack right now. But when you go to the south, you find that. I mean, where I'm from, Kentucky, I've mentioned to you, I don't know how many times, that within like a five-mile radius of my house, there were 80 Baptist churches. So they're all over the place. You can find them everywhere. But as they were, the Gurritzes, as they were sifting through all of these churches, I mean, you could get real excited about that right quick. Look at the choices we have. So many Baptist churches. But when they got inside, they found out that the name on the church hasn't anything to do at all with the doctrine that's being taught inside. And what had happened is all of these Baptist churches, they'd been mixing it up with all these false denominations, and they'd been mixed in with all this heretical doctrine that's being taught And you might even remember, I told you once, that in one church they even had a Jehovah Witness in the Baptist church teaching Sunday school. Now, we're not called to a unified effort and cooperation with churches that do not teach the truth. I don't care if you call yourself Christian or not. We have not been called to mix it up with people who don't teach truth. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. You know, that's what we've been trying to do on Sunday mornings, haven't we? In teaching through the, all these sermons that I gave you on false prophets, what are we trying to do? Reprove those who don't teach the truth of God's word. Don't join with them, reprove them. Then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers? For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. The ecumenical movement has one goal, bring all churches together, bring them all under these unholy perversions that they hold, and the scripture calls them infidels. It says we're to have nothing to do with them. Now, the second thing, we'll we'll end with this, is the ECT. And that stands for Evangelicals and Catholics Together. The ECT is a document that was originally signed in 1994. It was authored by Chuck Colson. Have you ever heard of Chuck Colson? Authored by Chuck Colson and Father John Newhouse. And it was signed by many Roman Catholic leaders, 
by some that were in the Southern Baptist Convention, by some Methodists, by Episcopalians, by some Assemblies of God. Later, some of those groups retracted their signatures, and so they came up with a new document entitled Evangelicals and Catholics Together Too. And that was signed by evangelical leaders like Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ, by Max Lucado, seen his books in the bookstore, Max Lucado by J.I. Packer, also by the president of Wheaton College and the president of Fuller Seminary, among many, many others, signed this document. The ECT has uh, five sections to it. We affirm together, we hope together, we search together, we contend together, we witness together. Here's the introduction to the document. As Christ is one, so the Christian mission is one. That one mission can be and should be advanced in diverse ways. Legitimate diversity, however, should not be confused with existing divisions between Christians that obscure the one Christ and hinder the one mission. There is a necessary connection between the visible unity of Christians and the mission of the one Christ. We, together, pray for the fulfillment of the prayer of our Lord. May they all be as one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So also may they be in us that the world may believe that you sent me, John 17. We together, evangelicals and Catholics, confess our sins against the unity that Christ intends for all his disciples. So in essence, the ECT says, evangelicals and Catholics together, their document says that it doesn't matter if you worship Mary as God. It doesn't matter if you say that Jesus' sacrifice was not really enough to save anybody from hell. It doesn't matter if you believe that the Roman church forgives sins. It doesn't matter if you believe that Rome still retains the right to persecute those who disagree with them. It says that it's all right that you believe there is no salvation outside of the Roman Catholic Church. It's all right if you believe that the Pope is infallible. It's all right if you believe that he stands in the place of Christ as if he were Christ. None of that matters. And more and more things are acceptable to the signers of the Evangelicals and Catholics Together Accord. Now, they're right about something. They have the same mission. They have exactly the same mission. And that is they preach a false Christ that leads people into hell, and they are in a unified effort to see that it happens. Now, let me wind down these six messages, and you really ought to have it have the picture firmly in your mind that Roman Catholicism is corrupt. They are without the gospel of Christ. There is no gospel there. They are the spawn of ancient Babylon. And they're going to be the head of this apostate church that will worship the Antichrist. I haven't said all there is to say. I have a lot more things that I'd like to say. But I'm afraid that all of you would be dead forever get done with the 17th chapter. So we're going to have to move on. But there are other things that you have to look out for. I mean, you take things like this. As much as we believe in pro-life, the pro-life movement has actually gone a long, long way to making, it, making unwary people think that Roman, Catholicisms are, Roman Catholics are Christians. They just got a little bit of quirk to them. Same thing is true of Mormonism. They join with that, and the whole idea is there to get them into the mainstream, make them acceptable, find these common causes, and... Alone, those causes are very good. But when you start mixing them up across denominational lines and with heretical teachers of false doctrine, then you have a recipe for disaster. And that is exactly 
what Roman Catholicism is looking for and what the Antichrist will be looking for. Find these common causes that people will join in and let's bring everybody together. I hate abortion. I believe it's murder. But I'm not going to rally with other Christians, most notably Roman Catholics, in order to support a common cause. In fact, I was invited not long ago to an interdenominational meeting for pro-life. And I refused to go. Because any time that you put Christian leaders together, you give credibility to the fact that they actually can be called Christians. So I don't join with that. No one is a Christian who is not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And no one preaches the gospel that doesn't do it according to New Testament principles instead of this new evangelical pragmatism that we see going on in churches today. So these are the kind of movements that actually give legitimacy to this one-world church and this one-world government. And when that happens, folks, I hope that you aren't still on this earth. Because if you are, you're going to be right smack dab in the middle of the Antichrist empire. So what we have here is ecclesiastical Babylon rising. And the seeds of growth are everywhere. They are all over the world today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for having opened our eyes to the truth of your word. Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to stand for your truth no matter what. Uh, There are all kinds of false teachers and false doctrines. There are those who criticize us because we won't join in in their causes and just do all things that are common with them. But Lord, we think we have read the scriptures accurately and clearly tonight that you expect us to come out from among teachers of false doctrine, not to become more involved with them. Lord, help us to stand for the truth. Help us to be a church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and that alone. And may we always do that here in Berean Baptist Church. Bless our people. We give you thanks for all of them that are here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.